0: I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 17 this morning, Matthew chapter 17, and then um, we will, uh, for the next couple weeks, take a break from our series in Matthew as I preach two sermons out of the book of Luke, uh, kind of leading up to Christmas, and I think that'll be a, a good time together. just wrote the first one um, two days ago and really enjoyed Uh, studying what Luke has to say about this really important thing about Jesus uh, coming to the earth for us. And then uh, on New Year's Eve, I'm really looking forward to preaching uh, an unusual New Year's resolution uh, to you. And I think it'll be a help to everyone uh, who's here on the 31st. And then uh, we will uh, take a short break from Matthew for the first two months of the year as we cover some different topics. And then hopefully... Uh, leading up to Easter, we'll jump back into the book of Matthew together. But hopefully you found your place in Matthew 17. In our reading this morning, is going to start in verse number 22. Matthew 17 and verse number 22. It says, and while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, the Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. In the third day, he shall be raised again. Now, you and I are like, amen. The disciples, they're not getting it. It says they were exceeding sorry. They were troubled. And when they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tribute? And he saith, yes. And when he was come to the house, Jesus prevented him, saying, What thinkest thou, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tributes? Of their own children or of strangers? Peter said unto him, Of strangers. Jesus said unto him, Then are the children Free notwithstanding or nevertheless, lest we should offend them, go thou to the sea and cast a hook and take up that fish which first cometh up. And when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money. Take that or that take and give unto them for me and thee. It's been famously attributed to Benjamin Franklin that he said this one time, nothing in life is certain except death and taxes. Sorry, Michael, but that's the truth. Uh, The end of the year is almost upon us, and so as January 1st begins, many of you will be getting some sort of statements from your bank, from your employer, from your retirement company, from your mortgage company, Every company has something to do with taxes, it feels like. And um, we're all going to have to deal with the reality of taxes. I'm not sure which one I'm more uncomfortable with, death or taxes. I don't know which one depresses me more. I think it's taxes, to be honest, because of the future hope of heaven. Unfortunately, this story will not free you from paying the IRS for your 2023 taxes. Jesus's death accomplished a lot of things. Can we agree on that? But Jesus's death has not abolished the IRS, at least not yet. Did a lot of things for us. But what I am excited to show you this morning is that in our passage, Jesus actually makes a very rich connection between his death and taxes. And this is a very strange passage, I'll be honest, um, just maybe to help you, that not every text we go to, I'm like, yeah, I can't wait to preach that one. You know, transfiguration or taxes? Which one would you pick if you were the preacher, right? But as I began to study this this morning, or this, this last few weeks, I really am excited to show you the rich application that comes from this very unique story that I think, if I remember right, is not in any of the other gospels. And what I want to share with you from this passage is I think that this passage gives us a glimpse of three gifts the death of Christ gives us. Now, I want you this morning to just marvel at God's timing. I scheduled communion not knowing what passage we would be on. And yet this passage, I can't think of a better one than some of the ones we've covered than this passage to communicate the significance of Christ's death and what it means for us. And what we're gonna see this morning is that his death for us gives us three different gifts, three different things that we can rejoice in this week. Now, in order to understand the passage, we have to wrap our heads around a, a question. And the question that this story begins with is this question. Did Jesus think that he was obligated to pay the annual temple tax? Now, I don't know about you, I have never lost sleep over this theological issue. Anyone else have? I don't know if any of you came to church this morning and be like, oh man, I really hope Pastor Mike addresses whether or not Jesus should pay the temple tax. Recently, if you receive our church emails, um, and if you don't, I would love to get get your email, I sent out a survey. I wanted to hear what books of the Bible some of y'all wanted to study. Not in any of those survey responses under the question, what topics would you like Pastor Mike to cover in a future series? I did not receive one single response that said, please, Pastor Mike, could you please tell me whether or not Jesus should pay the temple tax? So I recognize this morning, you are gonna be tempted to check out for the next five minutes. But if you check out for the next five minutes, you're gonna miss the whole message, okay? So I'm gonna give you just a little bit of background info, and if you understand this background info, you will appreciate this passage, hopefully, like I do. Now, when we think of taxes, we think of the government, right? Because the only person who taxes us is our favorite entity, the IRS, and the state of Kansas, right? We just love them. In our city, we got property taxes. We got taxes on all sorts of things, right? But in their day, this tax, the temple tax, it was not issued by the government. Actually, no, this tax was issued by God in the Old Testament. I want you to look on the screen. I want you to see Exodus chapter number 30, which is one of the two places this tax is mentioned In the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 30, verse 13, I want you to see verse 13. It says, This shall they give everyone that passeth among them that are numbered, half a shekel after the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is 20 geras, which we all don't know what that is either. A half shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. So here's what it says in verse number 13, that everybody was taxed in Hebrew currency a half a shekel. Now, by Jesus' time, uh, our text literally, though it says temple tax, un- the underlying Greek says it's a two drachma tax. It was like a day's worth of work. And, and I don't know, maybe modern equivalent of like 200 bucks a year, flat rate. Because verses 14 through 15 tell us that this tax was levied on everybody equally. Look at verse 14 through 15. It says, everyone that passeth among them that are numbered from 20 years old and above, that's kind of who you get is considered an adult in Hebrew culture, shall give an offering to the Lord. Look at verse 15. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel when they give an offering to the Lord. So here's what's interesting about that. Much of Old Testament offerings were proportionate. You get a certain amount of income and you give a percentage of that Back to God, right? 10%. We call that the tithe, right? And actually, what we'll talk about in a few weeks is that was more than 10%. It was like 23%. But nonetheless, it was mostly proportionate to your income. But this offering, this tax, was not proportionate. It was a flat rate. It was a small flat rate. But it signified that everybody in the eyes of God was equal because everybody paid the same amount, and the tax was to go, the offering was to go to support the operations of the temple. Now notice at the end of verse 15 and verse 16 that this says a word that you and I are a little bit, uh, would feel is strange, that they were to give this money to make an atonement for their souls. Look at verse 16. And thou shalt take the atonement money of the children of Israel and shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of the congregation that it may be a memorial, kind of like the Lord's Supper, unto the children of Israel before the Lord to make an atonement for your souls. Now listen, y'all thought that they only offered lambs to cover their sins, but the temple tax was a part of God's system for dealing with the individual guilt of sin on every Israelite. Quite literally, If you did not give, your sins were not atoned. Okay? So this was a requirement not from the government. This was not like some of the other Pharisees' requirements that were outside of the Bible. This was literally printed in black and white in their Old Testament Bibles. But despite that, there were people in Jesus' day Uh, many popular rabbis would protest the temple tax and would refuse to give it. And that's why Peter is approached, maybe being thought of as a leader, and he's asked, does Jesus pay this temple tax? And I know the double negative confuses us in verse 24, but essentially Peter says, yes, Jesus does. So when Peter walks in to the door and Jesus sees him, either Jesus seemed to overhear the, the conversation or he knew Peter's thoughts. And so he starts up a conversation with Peter in verse number 25, and he begins to explain to Peter that children or sons of kings don't pay the king's taxes. Look at verse 25. He says, what do you think, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tributes? Simon, when a king rules over a kingdom, who does he tax? His kids or foreigners? Y'all think you've got a lot of taxes. Think about those people who import goods to our country. They pay some serious taxes. And Peter's answer is pretty obvious. Well, of course, if you're part of royalty in their day, especially you did not pay taxes. It's actually the same in the British Empire. The the royal family does not pay taxes. It was obvious to Peter, well, of course, the king doesn't tax his own kids. He taxes the foreigners. He taxes people that aren't his family. Now, what Jesus says next is profound. It has huge application. Notice what Jesus says in verse 26. It's easy to read over it. Jesus said unto him, then are the children free. Now I want you to notice a few things here. What's interesting to me is that Jesus doesn't use the normal gender neutral term for children. He actually uses the plural term for sons. So literally he doesn't say children, he actually says sons. Now this should be interesting to us because we've been reading and the idea of sonship has been really prominent, hasn't it? When Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? What has Peter said? Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. When Jesus goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter once again and two of his closest buddies, the voice of God speaks from the cloud and what does he say from the cloud? This is my beloved son. But does Jesus say this day that the son is free? No, he says the sons, the children are free. What Jesus is saying here is it's not just him who is a unique son of God. It is not just him who has a special relationship to the God who wrote these Old Testament laws. Yes, Jesus is the son of the living God. Yes, he is the beloved son of the Father. But when Jesus starts saying, no, all of the sons are free from this temple tax, who could he be referring to? Could he be referring to his followers whom he instructed in chapter five to pray in this manner? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Jesus, in this passage, here's what he's saying in a way that is more clear maybe than it's been up to this point. He's saying, yes, I am the Son of God, but because of your relationship to me, you too are the sons, the children of God. Here's what he's saying. That Christ's death frees God's sons from the demands of of the law. We cannot forget that when the Bible is written, it's not written in individual chunks that are not connected to each other. It's not a mistake that in verses 22 and 23, Jesus predicts his death. And then now, immediately following that, Matthew chooses to include this expose on sonship. He's showing us That when Christ would die, though that fact would disturb the disciples, it would be the death of Christ that would give all of Jesus' followers the same claim of sonship that Christ Himself has. That because of their relationship to Jesus, Peter, And all of the other followers of Jesus could rightly say that they themselves are God's children. You see, because of Christ's death, it is not just the Son of God who can hear the voice of affirmation from the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen carefully, Christians. Christ's favor in the eyes of the Father is extended to all of those who trust in him. That because of your relationship to Jesus, you have a similar relationship to his Father. So the Father approves of Christ because Christ is so worthy of the Father's approval. Christ is not stained with sin. And yet you and I are, aren't we? If the father were to assess your condition individually, he could not say that I am well pleased, could he? He definitely couldn't say that about me but I don't have to fundamentally change who I am to get the approval of God the Father. No, I rest in the identity of his Son, of whom I call my Lord. And he extends that approval to me. Christian, stop beating yourself up and thinking that every time you sin, your approval with the Father has changed. Your approval with God is set by his Son, Jesus Christ, not by you not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. And because we have the relationship with Christ, that also means we share in the blessings of being sons and daughters of God. It's so amazing to me that almost everything the Bible says about Jesus in some way is conveyed to you as his child too. Who is Jesus? He is the king of kings. He is our merciful and faithful high priest. But as I was reading Revelation chapter number one, this last few weeks, I read that we too will be kings and priests unto God. Christ, after his resurrection, was given the glory of the Father. And 1 Corinthians 15 says that in our resurrection, we too will share in his future glory. Christ had an intimate personal relationship with the Father. And Jesus is very clear that through his mediating work, you and I too have a personal relationship with the Father. We come to the throne of grace boldly. Christ has a heavenly inheritance reserved for him. And the Bible says there's a heavenly inheritance reserved for you. But more significant than all of that, church, listen well, the death of Christ has freed you and me from all of the demands of the law. It was the law that said that those who commit sin are worthy of death. And there's so many different ways that showed up in the law, didn't it? I was reading this week that those who would be caught in adultery, both the male and the female partner would be put to death. It was a very serious crime. And so that's why if Mary is made pregnant as a virgin who's engaged to Joseph, it was not like a, ooh, yay, type of scenario. It was like a, oh, no, hide her away so nobody kills her scenario. We we see all sorts of other things. Children who would outwardly rebel against their parents. You think your parents were hardcore. If children would persistently rebel against their parents, they would be stoned to death. All of that is showing us what Jesus or what God said to Adam and Eve. That in the day you eat of the fruit, thou shalt surely die. And the Old Testament law recognized the reality of death as a consequence for sin because somebody had to die for these sins. So it was either that Israelite or it was that lamb. But what Jesus is showing us that in the same way God's children are free from the demands of this temple tax, they too are free from the demands of all the law. They do not have to be under the penalty of death because God has set his children free through his son, Jesus Christ. That's why if you've ever wondered why why as Christians I don't come up here and preach against bacon and preach on, you need to worship God on a Saturday. It's because of verse number 26. If we are sons of God, we are free from the demands of the law. Now, here's where the passage gets really interesting. You got to put your brain in gear, okay? Jesus says to Peter, you don't, you don't, you're free from this temple tax. You're a child of God. You don't need to pay it. I don't need to pay it. I'm the son of God. So what you and I expect is for Jesus to send Peter out there and say, actually, um, kindly, no, thank you. We will not be paying the temple tax like a lot of the other rabbis in the area. That's not what Jesus says. So what Jesus says is you don't have to pay the temple tax. You're free from the law because of your relationship to me. But strangely, Jesus tells Peter that he needed to show and his followers need to show deference. And so the second gift we get from Christ's sacrifice is a model of deference, a model of service. Jesus says something interesting. Look at the first part of verse 27. We've got to wrap our heads around this. He says, notwithstanding, lest we should offend them. So Jesus says, we're free from this tax, but I don't want you to offend these Jewish tax collectors. Now, we got to do a little bit of work on that word offend because you and I, when we hear the word offend, we think of our hurt feelings. That's not what that word means. The word offend quite literally means to cause someone not to believe in Christ. Uh, we see in other places of scripture this idea of a stumbling block or an obstacle. What Jesus is saying here is we, he's not saying, well, we should pay the tax so we don't hurt those people's feelings. no what he's saying to Peter is he says, we don't wanna put an unnecessary obstacle to those people who see our relationship to the tax here. Uh, We don't wanna put an obstacle between them and me. We don't wanna make it harder for them to believe in Christ. So Jesus is saying this to his followers. You don't have to pay the tax. Because of me and because of what I have done, and I'll talk about that in a minute, Jesus says, you are no longer obligated to the demands of the law. You're under no moral or spiritual obligation to do so. And so Jesus then is showing us as he's done all throughout his journey that he is reinterpreting the law as being fulfilled in him. But that doesn't mean, pardon the double negative, that his disciples shouldn't pay taxes. Temple taxes, y'all, not IRS taxes. He says this. He encourages them to obey the customs of the Old Testament law so that they could be more effective in their evangelism to their Jewish brothers and sisters. Are you following me? He's saying, you don't have to pay this tax because I am the fulfillment of that tax. I make atonement for you, not some money you give to the temple. But he's saying this, I want you to be as effective as possible reaching the Jewish people because by the way, he said in chapter number 10, I've sent you to the lost house, uh, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So he says, here's how you can be effective. Though you have no obligation to pay the tax, you should show deference You should show humility and you should still pay the tax. Now, let me make this very clear. Jesus was not afraid of offending his audience, okay? Matthew 15, verse number 12 says that Jesus offended them because of his message. So it's not like Jesus is some perennial people pleaser, okay? He's not out there like, oh no, they don't like me. We gotta make sure everyone likes me. No, what he's saying is this, and pay attention real closely. We can't control whether the gospel causes someone not to believe in Christ, but we can control whether or not our behavior causes someone not to believe in Christ. Now, how does this tie back to Jesus' message of the cross in verse 22? Our impulse as people, even as Christians who worship a crucified savior, here's our impulse. We are primarily governed by what we want. Numero uno on planet earth is me. What do I want? What do I feel? What do I think? But what Christ is showing his disciples is that his death is a model that what we give up, what we want, in order to serve and save others. Isn't that what Jesus did on the cross? Friends, in a human level, did Jesus want to go to the cross? Did Jesus want to go? No. Y'all are like, well, I don't know if that's wrong theologically. No. He says, basically, let me just paraphrase this prayer to God. This is not what I want but if it's what you want, I'll do it. Jesus didn't wanna go to the cross as a human, but Jesus gave up what he wanted to save and serve others. And isn't this the pattern in the Bible, in the New Testament, that the the, the Bible's very clear that Christ's death models our deference. Isn't that how the Apostle Paul governed himself in Jewish and Gentile territory? We saw this in our study in the book of Acts on Sunday nights that when he was in a Jewish territory, he's very careful to honor and obey the customs of the law, though he himself was one of the most outspoken people expounding the meaning of verse 26, that the children are free. Paul was all about that. Paul was the one who went to bat that Gentiles shouldn't have to observe Jewish law. But yet when he himself was serving Jewish people, he even said, hey, we gotta do this sacrifice. We gotta do this ritual so that we cannot unnecessarily offend the Jewish people that we are trying to minister to. And I think Paul, as well as Jesus, make us ask ourselves this question. This is a question you might write down. What is it that I need to give up so that I can better minister to lost people? What is it I need to give up so I can better minister to lost people? Let me give you some suggestions on some things that I think as Christians, if we want the world to come to Christ, we have in these areas at times put unnecessary stumbling blocks. And we have added to the list of things people need to jump over before they can come to Christ. Here's one, I think it's a stumbling block when we place an overemphasis on non-gospel issues. When you are ministering to any culture, you are laying an unnecessary stumbling block when your first effort with a non-Christian is to get them to agree with you on cultural or non-gospel issues before they come to faith in Christ. Christians, our message to a lost world is only one message. It is this message. Christ has died and risen from the dead to save people from their sins. That's our message. And all the necessary components that come with that, the message of sin. What is sin? Have we all sinned, right? The message of Christ and his atoning work and his status as the son of God. That is our message. That's it. When you have a lost person, that's all all you need to be preaching to them. But yet so many times as Christians, we look at our lost world and and I empathize with all of us on this. We look at it and we think, these people are wrong about a thousand things that the Bible says. Can I get a witness to that? Boy, they've got real messed up in this and real messed up in that and real messed up in this area of morality and really messed up in that issue. But can I just help you? that when you place an undue emphasis on things that I think even may be in the Bible, but are not gospel issues, you may unintentionally be putting another stumbling block before them before they can come to Christ. Friends, kindly, our message to a lost world is not our view on a certain matter of creation or not. That's not our message. Our message to a lost world is not a governmental policy. That's not our message. Christ did not die. So you could get people to agree with you on politics. And you may even feel like the Bible says what you say about that political issue. And I think so too in a lot of ways. But what I'm saying is that our message is not, let's get them to agree with us on this political issue. No, no. our message is Christ died for you. You're a sinner. Without Christ, you will be lost for eternity. And what we don't realize sometimes is when we start spouting out this and this and this, here's what the lost world says. Well, if I need to be a Christian, I need to agree with them and be a red-blooded Republican. If I'm gonna be a Christian, I need to be culturally conservative in all the ways they're culturally conservative. If I'm a Christian, then that means I have to agree with all these standards that they live. Do you see how that could be placing an unnecessary stumbling block? Now, here's what some of us might say. Well, Pastor Mike, I'm called to reach fill in the blank. Pastor Mike, I'm called to reach the Cowboys just like me. I heard someone talk about a pastor who said he was called to reach the wealthy. How convenient. <laughs> pastor Mike, I'm called to reach the people who agree with me on that political issue. But I might ask you, who did Paul think he was called to reach? Everybody. You know what he says in 1 Corinthians 10 or 9? One of the two? He says, to the Jews, I became A Jew the Gentiles that became a Gentile, you know what Paul's saying? I want to reach everybody. So I'm going to make sure that I'm not offensive to as many people as possible in the sense not annoying them or offending them in that way, but I'm not going to lay unnecessary stumbling blocks before them that keeps them from coming to Christ. Christ's cross is offensive enough. There's no reason for us to add to the list of grievances people have with Christianity. You know what else leads to an unnecessary stumbling block? insensitivity to offensive behavior. It's the attitude of a cavalier Christian who says this, I'm just who I am, and people need to accept me for who I am. Now, there's truth to that. But if who you are is rude, inconsiderate, ungodly, and offensive, you may be adding to the list of hoops someone needs to jump through to listen to what you have to say about Jesus. If you're a person that is offensive in your behavior or ungodly in your behavior, heaven forbid, when you preach the gospel to somebody, not only do they have to accept that Christ died for their sins, that they're a sinner, and that without Christ they'd be in hell, they also have to accept that this horribly immoral person somehow believes this message. They somehow have to get past your or my personality to hear the words we're trying to speak. It's a stumbling block. There's other ways that this model of deference speaks to us. I think that this attitude of deference also applies to the church as well. One of the greatest expositions on the meaning of Christ's death and incarnation is in Philippians chapter number two. And in Philippians chapter number two, when Paul gives that beautiful poem about Christ stepping down from the portals of glory to come and die on a cross, you know why he gave all that? So church members could learn, and I quote, to esteem one another better than themselves. So they could stop bickering over dumb things. So they could say, instead of you coming to my side in the issue, they could say, why don't we meet in the middle and both of us give up something? Now stop it right now, right now, stop it. Some of y'all are thinking about another person who needs to do that. No, look in a mirror for a moment and say, what, in what ways do I need to show deference to people who are different than me, perhaps in my local church or in my friendships or in my family? Christ's death models our deference. So Jesus says to Peter, because you're a son of God, you are free from the demands of the law But he says, though you are free, you should show deference and pay this tax so that you don't unnecessarily offend the people you're trying to preach the gospel to. Now here's where it gets really beautiful. Does Jesus ask Peter to pay that price out of his own pocket? Does Jesus call Peter to meet the demands of the law by his own work? No. The third gift that this passage shows us is the provision of a savior. Because Jesus tells Peter, you need to pay that temple tax. You need to pay what the law demands. But look at verse 27. Go thou to the sea, Cast a hook and take up the fish that first cometh up. And when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money that take and give unto them for me and thee. Christ didn't free Peter from the demands of the law. Listen very carefully. By dismissing the law. By saying, ah, it doesn't apply anymore. He freed Peter from the demands of the law By personally paying for what the law demanded. In this passage, that takes the form of Jesus paying a four, providing a four drachma coin out of the mouth of the fish. But there's something bigger at play here, church. The law demanded death because sin deserves death. The law demanded a price for atonement because somebody has to pay the price to escape death. And here's the big question in the Bible. Who's going to pay the price? Who's going to pay the price that God has levied against every sinner who's ever walked the face of this earth? Who is going to die so that we can have the life we want to live? And in this passage, Jesus shows us, you and I don't pay that price. No, his glorious begotten son is the one who pays that price. Christ's death pays the price God demands of his people. This fish and coin scenario is a great illustration of the gift of salvation that we celebrate in communion this morning. I want you to think about a few small thoughts about it. Peter didn't have to work for the coin. Jesus provided it. But Peter did have to properly respond to Jesus's provision, didn't he? He had to have faith. I mean, that's kind of an absurd thing, right? Hey, Peter, you gotta pay the tax. And Peter's thinking, oh great, more taxes, yay, right? Hey, Peter, go cast a line. This is an odd thing to say to a fisherman, and I promise you, you'll get a bite on the first cast because we all know that's not how it works when you go fishing. And oh, by the way, the first bite you get on your first cast will have a fish that has the exact amount of money you need to pay. That's a little bit of an absurd suggestion. Peter had to have faith, didn't he? to believe in Jesus's provision and to properly respond it. And we know that the coin didn't do Peter any good when it was still in the fish's mouth. No. Friends, Christ has already provided. But you and I still have to repent and believe to receive that provision. The provision does no good when it's in the hands of Jesus until you accept it. By believing in what he did for you and repenting and following him as your Lord. Our passage this morning has shown us that Christ's death gives us three rich gifts. Gifts. It gives us the gift of being God's children who are free from the demands of the law. It gives us the gift of showing us how to serve one another. And it gives us the gift of paying the price that is demanded of us freely. As we go about our week, how do we respond to this text? We respond by receiving Christ's salvation if we have not received it. But you know, just as much as repenting and believing the gospel, how do you respond to the gospel? By not being petty and offensive. (laughs) By showing deference. By examining your life and saying, is there anything in my life that is unintentionally prohibiting people from believing the gospel? What can I give up so I can better serve and save others? And I hope that you will go throughout your week meditating on those words in red in verse 26. Then are the children free. Reflect on being a child of God. Reflect on the profound meaning when God tells you you're free. What a great way to respond to our text this morning. Let's pray, and we will respond specifically to text by taking up communion. So I want those who are gonna help distribute the elements to get ready to do that this morning as I pray. Father, we thank you for the wonderful gift of Christ's cross. God, what a rich illustration this passage gives us that everything you freed us from was done because someone paid the price. Lord, this morning in a similar way as that temple tax was meant to be a memorial showing the work of your atonement I pray that as we take of communion together, we would remember your sacrifice for us. Thank you, God, for the privilege of being called your sons and daughters. Thank you, God, for freeing us from what the law demands. We celebrate and rejoice in that and are humbled by that this morning. In Jesus' precious and holy name, amen.